From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And a very happy Friday to you. Welcome again to Open Line Friday here on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Jack Williams is away. He will be back next week. I'm Tom Price, along with America's favorite theologian and our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? Pretty good, Tom. Looking forward to the weekend, I hope. We are. We're... uh Getting through the heat of the summer, I think it's, uh, it's a little bit nicer. We've we've actually so. had a bit of a reprieve yep. the last week or so, and it's just been glorious. And some of these evenings have just been great for you know looking at the stars and uh, thanking God for them. Uh, it's that's really true. And of course, August we just had a meteor shower here recently, but yeah. uh, there'll be another one in December for people who like to do that. And there's always other things in the heavens God has created. So there you go. If you've got a question for Colin Donovan, perhaps not about stargazing, <laughs> but about other things, uh, especially uh, where the That's church That's a different is. show. We're going to start that next week, maybe. Yeah, I, maybe you can work with Father Spitzer on that. I don't <laughs> there know. There you go. Anyway, here's our phone number for Colin Donovan, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205-271-2985. If you want to shoot us an email, well, why not? Here's the address, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Friday in the subject line or Colin in the subject line or theology in the subject line so that we can mix and match things there. So Colin... We're going to lead off with a very interesting question here. This is from Tim. Tim says, if the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Assyrian Church came back to full communion with the Pope, how would that affect the 23 Eastern Catholic Churches? That's a good question. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of those kinds of issues are unresolved. Um, The issue of governance for, for example, uh, John Paul II in his encyclical Ut Unum Sint on they shall be one, that they may be one, left open how the, the Pope, for example, would govern all the churches uh, in such a, a communion. Uh, certainly in the first century, the degree of government was fairly loose in that in a, given the times and the distances and the communications and so on, um, you could travel from place to place, but you weren't exercising authority at a great distance. But yet the Pope still wrote to the Corinthians, as Pope Clement did, to exercise authority over that church, which mm-hmm. uh, today would be in the Greek church, in the Greek Orthodox church. Uh, and the other instances in the early church, legates to uh, ecumenical councils and so on. So the elements of governance and that would be would be one thing that would need to be worked out. And obviously in that question is those groups, they're sometimes called uniate, but that's not a very popular term for groups of Orthodox who uh, resumed communion with Rome mm. at different points in history. 
Um, I think it's enough to say that they saw the significance of the of the role and the primacy of the of the Holy Father as more than a primacy of honor, but a necessary uh, instrument of ecclesial communion at all levels of teaching and governance. Is it a, a, a uniate? Is that an imprecise term? Well, it's a term that's been used for a long time, but I, I've heard that I don't think that it's very popular, for I example, see. even among our Eastern Catholics, I simply see. because uh, it describes a certain historical situation, but they are e- Catholic churches which whose ritual elements mm-hmm. are of a particular uh, tradition, mm-hmm. Byzantine, Maronite, Melkite, Ruthenian, and so on. So that's a better way of describing it, and the church speaks of them as churches sui juris. In other words, mm-hmm. they're churches under law in communion with the Pope. And so some of that existing law could be used. For example, with the Eastern churches uh, today, they have their own code of canon law. A great deal is devolved even from that to the synods, of the particular churches themselves, in mm-hmm. other words, to the hierarchy of the particular uh, ritual churches to decide matters the, in accordance with their traditions. And uh, so there are already some models of ecclesial communion in existence in the relationships between Rome and the Eastern Catholic churches. So that would all have to be worked out. The principal obstacle, of course, is the kind of primacy that the Bishop of Rome exercises in the universal church. Uh, And uh, I think once that domino fell, the others would be relatively easy because as John Paul II said, he at least, and I'm sure his successors as well, would be in, would be, you know, would consider other ways of governance than say the way the the Bishop of Rome governs the Latin Rite churches, yeah, yeah. of which he himself is a part. Mm-hmm. So I think those kinds of issues would be worked out, and there are already some frameworks and ideas, uh, say, in Ut Unum Sint and in the Code of Canon Law and elsewhere. So mm-hmm. All right. uh, we can only hope, because I think breathing with two lungs, as the Pope always said, uh, is an important element of the Church yeah. to show the universality of the Church. And there is that expression in the... Uh, in the Last Supper discourse of our Lord, mm-hmm. the spoke of how the world would be converted. He prayed that the apostles would be one, that the world may believe. And I think when that day ever comes, the rest of the Gentiles and ultimately the Jews would believe. So the unity of all the churches is very important because it fulfills that prayer of Christ. Because right now, those with apic, legitimate apostolic succession mm-hmm. from the apostles are separated because of those who lack communion with the head of the college, the Pope. And if that can ever be fixed, it will be a glorious day, and that yeah. unity will shine in the world. And that's what we hope and pray for. Praying for that unity every day. Tim, thanks so much for, uh, for your question. Here's one from Jane. I have heard the statement, quote, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What does that mean? Well, we we think of the glory of the Father, we think of the glory of God, certainly from the Old Testament, and we understand the triune nature of the Godhead. But within the Godhead, there is also the the order of the processions, the relationships among the persons. And so even the Son does the will of the Father, as Christ explicitly asserted when he was uh, on earth and during his public ministry. And the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father, and the Son, or through the Son, mm-hmm. as many Eastern formulas would put it, uh, 
there too, there is a relationship, but that relationship always goes back to the principium, the father. The father is the, the fount from which the other two persons uh, derive and who their relations, their, their circumincessio, their moving around within, if you will, the Godhead always returns. And so Christ himself gives glory to the Father. And this is why when we worship the Fa- we worship God, we worship the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit. Because even within the Godhead, there is a relationship in which prayer right, goes to the Father and the graces of God come to us through Christ in the Holy Spirit. And so all of our Eucharistic prayers, the way they end, describe that that Trinitarian, what's been called the Trinitarian Christological Dialogue, that everything comes from the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit, and everything goes back to and is given back to God, whether worship or prayer, whatever, to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. That's how we are inserted into that nature of God, really, if you think about it on our creaturely level. Very good. And uh, we have a couple of lines open for you now. If you have a question for Colin Donovan, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Quick one here as we're going to break from James. What is the Catholic Church's stance on suicide? Well, obviously, suicide is self-murder. Objectively, it's an evil because it violates the fifth commandment Mm. thou shalt not kill we have no more right to kill ourselves than to kill another god is the author of life now there are circumstances when we know in justified self-defense it's legitimate because the other person is trying to take our life we have a right to use force to stop them and that sometimes approaches the point of you know of killing them almost as a certainty when you have to that's the only thing that will work. So taking a life is one thing. Taking one own, one's own life is something different because the corollary of thou shalt not kill is that thou shalt love the life we're given and yeah. therefore to do everything within our power, within, within human limits, therefore to, to deal with that. So suicide is, uh, is a moral evil. The church understands, however, that often people are brought to that by reason of their mental health, by reason of depression and other circumstances. And those are mitigating factors which can even reduce or take away any of the moral guilt. The objective guilt is there, but the moral guilt depends upon our knowledge and the ability of our will to, to, you know, to do what knowledge sure. tells us we ought to do. Sure. And that can be affected by many things. James, thanks so much for your question. We'll get to Andy on the East Coast in a moment here on Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, Call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, lines are open for Colin Donovan right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you call right now, we can probably get you on today's show. Ask your question of Colin Donovan. In a moment, we'll get to those phones. Let me tell you a little bit about EDIA, EWTN Media Missionaries. I tried to say two words at the same time. <laughs> mm-hmm. EWTN's 
media missionaries. These are wonderful people. They prayerfully take EWTN to parishes and the community through the print and electronic media that we provide to you. Now, you can help EWTN share the good news by becoming a media missionary yourself. Visit EWTNmissionaries.com today. EWTNmissionaries.com. Join us in sharing the eternal word with the world. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin today with Andy uh, somewhere on the East Coast, listening via the EWTN app. Hey there, Andy. Happy Friday to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Happy Friday. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I watch the Mass online a lot because I can't always make it to daily Mass Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. from our local parishes. And... um, I noticed that sometimes during the Nicene Creed, the priest will change the line that says, for us men and for our salvation, and omit the word men. So it's just for us and our salvation. Um, you know, knowing that mm-hmm. when the creed was written, men was, you know, the word that we use to describe all mankind, not to differentiate between men and women sure, specifically. Yeah. Is this an acceptable practice? Uh, I just, I don't, you know... Yeah. It doesn't seem right to be changing the words of the creed. But. Are you, uh, let me ask you this, Andy, are you saying this about EWTN's streamed Mass, or are you talking about other Masses that you're seeing online? Other Masses I'm seeing online. Yeah. Uh, no, the the text of the creed is the text that's approved by the Church that represents the faith of the universal Church, not an individual parish or di- even a diocese, but rather of the faith of the Church. Uh, and therefore, the language of those, the particular language of that, uh, is approved by the uh, U.S. Bishops' Conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's recognized by the Holy See. In other words, it has the authority not only of all of our U.S. bishops, but it has the papal authority behind it. And it's expressing a particular reality and idea that is historically embodied in a creed that goes back to the third, fourth, and fifth centuries. Um, the, the fourth century and its uh, two elements, the Nicene and the Constantinopolitan part. And in that creed, it's expressing the idea of human nature, as you so correctly uh, described the issue, really, uh, in your question. So he's obliged, the priest uh, who is whoever, one parish or many parishes across the country, uh, are obliged to use those texts. It's not under their authority. What's interesting is even the Second Vatican Council in its Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy makes it clear that the authority over the Sacred Liturgy belongs to uh, to the Apostolic See mm-hmm. uh, because this is at the heart of our faith. The Creed is the most profound uh, profession of faith. We have the Apostles' Creed, an earlier uh, uh, version of those, a simpler version, and we have the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, which expresses the, that same creed, really, uh, as developed in the face of particular heresies about the nature of the Trinity and the Godhead and, and, and Christ himself, his nature, and re- resolving those in the relationship of Our Lady there uh, as well, and we say that she is the Teotokos, the Mother of God. And so, it's a very important statement, and to tamper with that suggests superiority over that. 
So it's clearly forbidden in law. It's forbidden in the liturgical norms. It's forbidden by common sense. It's forbidden by the virtue of justice, which tells us that we owe, uh, uh, we owe to, in his the priest's case, the bishop and the pope. And, you know, what are there now? I read 7,000. I don't think there's that many, but there might be with retired bishops and all. But there are 3,000, 4,000 different dioceses. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of people in agreement among the hierarchy as to what the text means yeah. and accept it and use it. Uh, and for, you know, Father whomever to say, I'm going to just change it, it's just fairly arrogant. So This is a no ad-libbing zone. This is a no ad-libbing zone, and any of the texts in the Missal are... Are, yeah. are not to be ad-libbed. Uh, and I know priests get carried away, especially priests of, of a certain generation, my generation for the most part. Okay. Uh, older guys, uh, you know, learned maybe not as solid a theology, and they think that's okay, or they wish to please the masses, uh, please those who oppose certain mm. elements of church doctrine or or even okay. linguistic use like yeah, this Yeah, sure. Uh, but that's no excuse, and that's not a, not a legitimate excuse. All right. Andy, is that helpful for you? That That's an outstanding answer, and I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to provide that clarification today. Okay, Andy, sure thing. You are most welcome. I might refer you to our other uh, radio network available really all over the world, and that is EWTN Radio Essentials, where we air the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass every two hours. So you can hear it at 8 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Eastern, 12 noon, uh, 2 p.m., and on and on and on throughout the day and into the evening. So uh, there you go. EWTN Radio Essentials is available on the EWTN app, which is what you're listening to us right now. Just uh, scroll down a little bit, and you'll see uh, EWTN Radio Essentials, and you'll be good to go. Hey, that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN Radio. Uh, email question here from Ronald. Did the good thief go to hell with Jesus for three days, go to purgatory for the 40 days Jesus was on earth, and then ascend into heaven with Jesus? Do we know about any of this, Colin? No, but I think we can conjecture that he went to hell. But that needs explanation. Because here is meant what it means when we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. Uh, in the British-speaking English part of the world, they mm-hmm. all say descended to the dead, such as uh, uh, we Canucks up in the north there would say that. In Britain, the same thing. Because of this conflicted nature of what the word hell means. Mm-hmm. Because it really means the lower regions, the place of the dead, Sheol for the Jews, Gehenna, uh, so there was no definition of what was involved there. Christ in uh, the Gospel of Luke, where he tells the story of the Lazarus and the rich man, gives a little bit of a definition by indicating that Abraham, uh, that uh, the rich man went to the bosom of Abraham, or the poor man went to the bosom of Abraham, uh, whereas the rich man went to the fiery place. That's hell, properly speaking. Yeah. But until Christ came and ascended to the Father and took with him all of the just of the old law, the rest of mankind that was just, this bosom of the Abraham, was is referred to in Catholic theology as the limbo of the patriarchs. In other words, the just men and women of the old law. And so this is where the good thief would have gone. Uh, the relationship to purgatory in that context uh, 
uh, is certainly not clear because we have very little information uh, in the uh, in, in the scripture regarding that, we could surmise that in the case of the good thief, by by the word of Christ alone, he was made just, and it would have been a perfect act. And I suspect uh, he had all of his uh, debt of sin, temporal and eternal, was pay, was paid for in that forgiveness from the cross of him. Wow. There you go. And thank you so much uh, for your uh, question there. And that is from Ronald. Appreciate your email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here is the address. Openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. As we say, uh, be sure you put Colin in the subject line or Friday or theology so that we can uh, do a little, you know, matchmaking there for you. <laughs> Lines are open for you, though, right now at 833-288-EWTN. <clears throat> Excuse me. That is 833-288-3986. Lindy has a, an emailed question here. In the past few years, the names of Anglican writers are mentioned and praised a lot on Catholic media. What caution should Catholics keep in mind to not allow the church teachings to be skewed by the writings of these authors? I think it depends on the authors. Uh, obviously, we know Newman came into the church, uh, and so his pre, pre-Catholic writings indicated the direction he was taking. And if you're looking for apologetic material to other non-Catholics, especially those in the Anglican Communion, mm-hmm. uh, I think Newman's uh, pre-Catholic writings, where he sought to elucidate the connection between his own Anglican faith and the apostolic faith, mm-hmm. uh, would would be helpful. So I think that's always the issue there. Where morally, we never have the right to to. Let, let's say, endanger our faith by reading things that we're not competent to read mm. or to read safely on other moral grounds, such as pornography and so on. But for for writings, we, we do need to be prudent and we do need to be cautious. So I, I suspect if, uh, whether it's on EWTN or any of the other Catholic networks, which mm-hmm. there are several, but not that many, uh, one would hope that that kind of prudence is employed there. Obviously, referencing a C.S. Lewis, for example, you have particular circumstances there in his mm-hmm. marvelous writings. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there are many Catholic authors from the, not of the Anglican tradition, except maybe remotely like a Chesterton or a Belloc, who are fully Catholic. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, any author, even a Catholic author, you must at least do that initial prudence of saying, uh, of asking yourself, is this worthwhile reading for me, or will it at some level endanger qualms or quibbles about the faith which I hold strongly now. And I think that's the moral danger. And for that, there's no black and white rule. It requires us having an upright conscience and Mm -hmm. making decisions circumstantially as to whether I ought to be reading this or that book. Sure. All right. Lindy, thanks so much for your question. Here's one from Andrew. If angels have perfect knowledge of God and they have free will, why would some rebel and some not? Well, I would say they don't have perfect knowledge of God. Like us, uh, in our natural state, we have a certain certain knowledge of God. The knowledge that God gave them at their creation, mm-hmm. just as at our, in our cases, is basically the knowledge that we get in our education from our parents and others. So we, we acquire the knowledge, and based on that, we... Uh, we have to decide for or against God. With the angels, it was a lot clearer because the knowledge they had would have been, you know, true all the way through, whatever degree it was. 
but they had free will. And perhaps it's the fact that it couldn't be the full knowledge of God, since only God can know that himself completely, that there is in there enough for ego to rise up and say, as Satan is said to have done, I will not serve. So perfect knowledge in that they had no freedom to choose no. Uh, but a knowledge sufficient that they had good reason and better reason to choose than to not to choose it. Yeah. And unfortunately, they made the wrong mistake. I'm afraid so. Andrew, thanks so much for your question. In a moment, we'll get back to the phones, and hopefully we'll be talking with you at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Open line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. All right, last call, y'all. Let's get those phones ringing for Colin Donovan at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, several of our EWTN Radio family members are celebrating their anniversaries this week, including Prince of Peace Radio in Palm City and Stewart, Florida, celebrating 15 years on the air. How about that? Also, KFIP 107.3 FM on the Big Island of Hawaii. They are celebrating five years of great Catholic radio with EWTN. So congratulations to you wonderful people. Let's go on now to uh, Art in Cocoa Beach, Florida, listening on the great Divine Mercy Radio. Hey there, Art, what's on your mind today? Art in Cocoa Beach? Hello. Hey, Art, what's going on? Yeah. Uh, I I have two questions. If you can answer them, that's fine. Uh, One has to do with, well, they both have to do with our priests. And one is that uh, we talk about the Good Shepherd, and Mm -hmm. we're hearing a lot about the Good Shepherd nowadays, that leaves the flock to save the lost sheep. And the other question is, in the Our Father, what does it mean for a priest when it says, deliver us from evil? Okay. Okay. Uh, Yeah, stay on the line in case I have a question, especially about that second part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, obviously... The, the good shepherd leaving the one and, and uh, leaving the 99 in order to find the one, I think to some extent is hyperbole, but it's hyperbole with a point. It's he, the Lord is exaggerating to show how much and how important every sinner is. Uh, and to give this example of the shepherd, the, the sheep congregate together, and so they're not really lone individuals they stay i think in their flocks pretty well but if one strays off then the shepherd has to go get it and he leaves the 99 so it's a natural uh analogy taken from agricultural life in first century israel (laughs) obviously sure first century judea so and i think it's showing the point that the pursuit of the the pursuit of the the one who needs care sometimes mean that you take a certain, not a casualness, but you recognize that those who are already well cared for, they don't need you. They're taking care, they're, they're fine the way they are, and now go off to find that one. 
And I think, you know, if, if, you're, if you're looking in the church today, there's a lot of talk you mentioned at this point, I think, or alluded to it, about the peripheries, the people who are far away from the church or estranged from the church. There will be millions and millions of people whose likelihood that they'll ever be estranged from the church is close to zero. They firmly believe they're very active in the church. They love the church. Uh, sometimes, like every institution, we get exasperated with the church. <laughs> But it's those who ha- have grudges for whatever reasons, through the failure of clergy even. Yeah. Um, you know, this is something that the saints, uh, I think, tried not to do. Uh, there's the wonderful story of the, um, uh, of the Franciscan priest. I think we had his feast day recently. I can't remember his name. Uh, that Pope John Paul II made one of the... Uh, Patrons of Confessors, Leopold Mandic. Oh, okay. All right. And Leopold Mandic, at the end of his life, he agonized because during his priesthood, in which he was hearing, I guess, 10, 15 hours a day of confessions, yeah. mm-hmm. like a Padre Pio and mm-hmm. a John Vianney and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all the great confessors down through history, that f- he had to deny absolution to five people, a whopping five people in how many hours of because he didn't cajole them or he didn't teach them or he didn't encourage he somehow he never reached them Mm -hmm. today we have a spirit of you know church's way or the highway hey let's just tell these people you know either shape up or get out Mm. i don't think that's the methodology of christ I think it's like a Leopold Mandic, and that is, there's only that, there's not, doesn't spend, didn't spend that amount of time on the majority who came to confess their sins. He gave his advice, he gave his absolution. But for those hard cases who weren't quite there to, at the point of repenting, he worked and he worked and worked, and he failed only five times in his priesthood, and he regretted it. What else could I have done? That's the good shepherd, mm, yeah. expending everything to get those on the periphery, to mm. get that those five sheep that have wandered so far from the church. Maybe there were bullies in the flock, That whatever the reason. Yeah. And so that, I think, is a, is a way of looking, uh, looking at that question. Now, I'm not quite, here's where I wanted you to stay on, Art. I wasn't quite sure why the deliver us from evil and with the priest. I mean, obviously, the priest is a human being and has all the moral, all the potential for uh, for avoid, need to avoid moral evils as the rest of us. So I think... Can you elaborate a little yeah, bit for us? Yeah, on? is it more beyond the ordinary thing that we all have to avoid sinning and occasions of sin and, and all of that? Well, I have a, a theory on both of these, and the first one is my children all left the church and some gave up on God Mm-hmm. all because of the things that started happening, and they were raised by a very spiritual mother who has even returned from the dead. And she's appeared to several people from the parish and to me off and on, which, of course, is, again, not, you know, legal yet. But, uh, <laughs> not confirmed by the Church, in right, other words, right. yes. Yeah. Okay. But why only one of my children said, Dad, you know, when we left the Church, not one priest, and they were all raised in the Catholic schools, mm-hmm. not one priest called and even or even tried 
should say, hey, how are you doing? Or, you know, not that they have to yeah. say, hey, come on, you yeah. got to get back here. No, they said nothing. They all, all we ever got was, I'll pray for them. Mm-hmm. And that's been up to almost 20 years now, sure. yeah. one after another. And some even can't even imagine that God's worth anything because uh, they're doing all right. You know, they're all doing successful, so life is fine. But uh, they have completely changed, and half our parish has, because yeah. almost all the kids are, there's no, no, young, no generation yeah. like that left in the church. Yeah, no, I, I I see your point, and I think the priests have a special duty to uh, to help others uh, in that case. Um, I can't speak for for those particular priests, but on the other hand, you can imagine, um, you know, there's a great sometimes a fear of giving offense. You know that it's not my place to jump in with both feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think encouragement from parents and other family members in that case might give the, you know, will you speak to Jimmy or Joan or mm-hmm. whomever? Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're a little confused and they need answers. As well as encouraging Jimmy and Joan to, you know, if you know good priests, you know, parents and similar, if you know good priests, then send them to speak to them. Uh, and I think one of the things EW can do, EWTN can do through its television and radio ministry is that we are we can be that anonymous person that you don't have to be embarrassed to sit down before your television and learn about the faith. Oh yeah. So or to to get a good book and learn, you know, just to encourage people, kids and others in that situation. I don't think you're correct in your assessment. You know, maybe you should uh, you know, here, here's a here's a, a a good book that you might read about it, or or have you watched EWTN or listened to Catholic radio? Um, these kinds of things that usually that one thing will strike the heart of a person and start them on the path mm-hmm. back. Yeah. It may be a long path back, but yeah, I think uh, Art, you really do point to a problem, and that is, it's very easy to just brush those cases aside. But I think it needs a particular encouragement, especially from the family members of those individuals, too. And, and, and also to give the priest a handle sure. on dealing with those p- particular souls. God bless you, Art. Thanks so much for your call. Here's an email from Albert. How do we explain that we do not believe the earth is as old as all the ages added up in the genealogies of the Bible? Well, because unless you believe that the Bible's written to give us a, a, a perfect genealogical account, but that's not how most scholars look at that. Uh, it's a representative. If you look at the kings, uh, uh, kings of Israel, it's not every king. Uh, if, if for anything, the expression "son of" in 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 Hebrew can indicate, uh, you know, all the Jews alive today are sons of Israel from mm-hmm. that point of view, but yet Israel is not their immediate father. Yeah. So there are linguistic re- linguistic reasons why that's not a, a valid uh, viewpoint. Um, but the main reason is the theological reason that this is uh, those genealogies are there to Israel telling its history for the Old Testament genealogies. Mm-hmm. And in the Gospels, we have the genealogy of Christ from Adam and, and David to establish his uh, Davidic descent and his, you know, his descent uh, from Adam to Abraham and, and so on. 
And so those established him as a human, you know, as a man fully in his uh, bodily nature, in his human nature, and also uh, as a successor of King David. And so those have that theological purpose. They weren't written so that genealogists of the 20th or 21st century can, you know, Tally put, them up. Tally yeah. them up and put them into some ancestry <laughs> yeah, yeah. or family tree form and, you know, and have a history account there. All right. Uh, great question, though, Albert. Thank you so much uh, for your email. It is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. A little later on today, it's Catholic Answers Live. Tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern, two hours of your Bible questions with Jimmy Aiken. Should be a great program. Check it out tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern, exclusively on EWTN, your radio home for Catholic Answers Live. All right, let's go now to uh, Terry in Fairfax, Virginia. Hey, Terry, what's on your mind today? Uh, yes, good afternoon, and thanks for taking my call. Uh-huh. And hello, Colin. I have hello. a question um, that I need some clarity. Uh, liturgical abuse. What does what must take place for me to realize there's liturgical abuse happening during Mass? For example... Mm-hmm. Not where I'm from. I'm from Fairfax, Virginia. We have an excellent diocese, mm-hmm. North Virginia. You do. So this is not Virginia. This is the Latin American Spanish mm-hmm. region. Okay. I'm just right. going to leave it at that. So when I go to that parish, um, I have uh, there's a particular priest that before the consecration, he instead of saying um, gave it to his disciples and said he, he'll go gave it to his amigos y amigas. Okay. And then, or, or in the same parish, they will have a nun during the, liter- during the homily, basically giving a presentation or a homily type of presentation. Mm-hmm. Or um, he also has a streamlined version of the creed in which he basically breaks it into four pieces. It's not the entire creed but he breaks it into four pieces, okay, of that specific creed, which is sort of like the original one, but it's not complete, and then he asks the congregation to say, I do. So I get really upset, all right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, because my, my, anyway, I don't like to watch that, but anyway, um, the consecration, if the consecration, Colin, is valid, Mm-hmm. Do I need to lose my peace over these other things that happened before or afterwards? Yeah. Okay, all yeah. right. Well, all of those are direct violation of liturgical law. If I had to say the most serious, it would probably be um, the homily, since that was a specific prohibition because of the... Uh, efforts for women's ordination, which are sort of reviving again in our day after some quiescence. Oy. But uh, there is no snowball's chance in that place for uh, that to ever occur. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francis has said so. All of his successors have said so. Uh, it has been solemnly taught by John Paul II and Pope Benedict as his prefect affirmed that that is part of the Catholic faith in explaining the uh, the the weight of authority there, um, so that would be, in my view, the one of the more serious ones. I'm glad your consecration is valid. 
You know, I come from a time in the 70s and 80s when liturgical abuses were rampant in some places endemic mm-hmm. or maybe even pandemic. Pandemic. Yeah. Pandemic, yeah. <laughs> in, at least in certain places. Sure, sure. And I think the advice is a valid mass gives you something which is absolutely priceless, and that is Jesus Christ and the grace of the sacrament. So wherever you are in the world and you experience a Mass which has these kinds of deficiencies, you can be certain that if the priest is exercising his power, uh, has not placed a willful intention not to consecrate, and the matter and form are valid, that at least you have that. Mm -hmm. The rest is how much you can stomach, I think. What's your tolerance level? Because very often in those situations, I found by long experience, it does no good to complain. It just gets you worked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can look, certainly look for a place to go to Mass where you're at peace. When you have no option, you at least know that you're getting the sacrament there. And, and maybe by getting to know the priest, you'll have, you know, well, why bother you to do this? I mean, the Amigo Amiga stuff... Um, Really? I mean, that sort of goes with the homily thing, as if, <laughs> I mean, what can you say? What's wrong with, uh, you know, uh, what's you in know, the book? And we do use a partial creed after a fashion at the Easter Vigil when the priest asks us the various ver- uh, yes. articles from the Apostles' Creed, and we say, I do. Maybe that's where he got the Maybe idea. Maybe that's where he got the idea. And during Lent, yeah. well, you sh- can use the Apostles' Creed, although that's a particular form that you use in baptism and not... Uh, typically at other times. So I I would say your peace is important, Um, but it is very sad when when priests do that kind of thing because that's that's not their role. Their role is to minister the the sacraments of Christ, not the sacraments of Father X, Y, and Z, or the Mass of X, Y, and Z, or the lectionary of X, Y, and Z, but the lectionary of Christ and his church. That's what people should expect, and if they don't get it, they have a right to tell them Hey, sure. you're not giving me what I need, mm-hmm. the ministration I need. Yeah, Terry, thanks so much for your call. Here is uh, Michael now in Tulsa, listening on the EWTN app. Michael, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I know the Church frowns on secret societies like the Freemason. How, what's the Church's view on Greek organizations and colleges, fraternities and sororities? Well, like the other things that we people get into at that age... Mm. <laughs> Um, yeah, unless there's no moral harm there, uh, I'm not sure that there's much to be taken seriously there. Okay. Uh, the, the point of Freemasonry was the history of, of, of uh, con- conspiracies against governments, royalty in particular, mm-hmm. uh, and the church. Uh, and this has more or less died out, died out in our, our time. In Italy, there was the... Uh, the P9, or I forget the name of the lodge that in the 70s and 80s was accused of working against the government and, and really? the church. And, yeah. So there may be some of that going on. The biggest problem with the, the Masons for the church is it's a humanistic group. It's not religious. Yeah. They give it a religious color. They have chaplains. They have these different stages you go through. They have ceremonies that are like liturgies and vestments and and all the rigmarole of that. But it's a naturalist religion, and it's not a saving religion. They put themselves forward as the brotherhood of man 
mankind all the way back to the Egyptians or Solomon's temple or something like that, which is a figment of their imagination. But it's not the it's not the communion, it's not the brotherhood of Jesus Christ and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a very humanistic thing. So it's bad on those grounds, sororities and fraternities. Uh, you know, if you can survive the parties and some of the other <laughs> rigmarole of college, you'll probably survive sororities and fraternities as well. Yeah, and and don't watch Animal House, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Give you ideas you don't Please, need. Please, <laughs> just don't go there. All right, and uh, thank you so much for your call, Michael. Here is a question that actually started to give me a headache. I was trying to unpark it here. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) This is from Darlene. When Satan seduced Eve to eat the apple, did the snake deserve to be punished by losing his wings? Did you get all that? Right. Yeah. No, I I get it. Uh, Okay, good. You know, the the Lord, (laughs) because it's Revelation. Yes. uh, A marvelous example. Because the serpent, and you see it again in the Exodus with the serpent, that uh, the the poisonous asp that would attack the uh, attack the people, mm-hmm. and so uh, God took care of that problem for him. You know, nail the snake to the to the to a cross, mm. and that would be to a pole, and that will that will deliver you. All prefiguring of Christ, mm-hmm. and the word in Hebrew is seraph burning one and we use this for the highest angel it's the burning ones the seraphim because they're burning with love and fire and zeal for god and it's quite likely that lucifer was the light bearer was a seraphim and that he fell and so the snake and the poison of the snake are a perfect analogy to the poison of the devil the poison of Lucifer and his allies. Okay. If he has allies, I'm not sure that can be used any more than friends can be. Mm. Those whom he forces to do his yes. will, in other words, would yes. be better. That All would right. be a better statement of it. Very good. You know, so it it's a very good uh, expression. How the wings there, I think, uh, is maybe a reference back to the fall of the angels. Okay, now the I get flight, it. The flight of the angels, and we're, we're told that the devil was cast down to the earth. Uh-huh. And so we can connect Genesis with the New Testament and even all the way through the theology of the interpretation of those texts by the church and see that there is a constant theme of mm. the, the luminous creation, if you will, yeah. flying above cr- creatures mm-hmm. of the angels and those that lost it and turned out to be, you know, poison for creation and particularly poison for man. And the, the, the serpent, the snake, and the poison of the seraph is, are very good ways of representing that in sacred scripture. Beautifully done by, by the author. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up for me. Here is Jessica now in San Antonio listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Jessica, what's on your mind today? Yes, hi. I needed help defending the faith. <laughs> okay. So, some apologetic advice. Um, you know, with the relics that are out there, how do I convince, or not convince, but how do I explain, rather, educate, rather, mm-hmm. um, how this isn't the same as desecrating the body? Well, the the Church, more than any other institution, has given 
shown respect for the body. We re demand, require that, you know, the body be buried uh, in, a, in a fitting fashion, uh, not that it is not, for example, you know, reduced to ashes and spread all over some favorite mountain or parklands. Mm -hmm. uh, and so because the body which fed on the Eucharist is the logic, uh, deserves to be shown that respect. And I think that respect is shown in relics because of the purpose of relics. The purpose is to turn our mind ultimately to God, the very thing that the Eucharist did and the, and the saintly life lived by the saint did during their life. And we see that witness, uh, we have relics in the New Testament. Uh, we have the handkerchief of Paul. Um, we have the hem of Christ's garment which per performed a miracle instrumentally. It didn't think, oh, here's a lady touching me, I'm going to perform a miracle. But instrumentally, God used it. And the relics of the saints, uh, even as we see with St. Paul, uh, have done that down through time. So it's the different purpose uh, that is uh, of, of the usage there. That in the case of the relics of the saints, they're venerated, they're treated as holy objects, they are not to be treated in any desecrating fashion. Uh, you know, uh, they shouldn't be there. The church uh, gives authentic relics, a document to uh, attest to their authenticity and their, uh, and their uh, origin uh, in the saint and what kind of relic they are of, of body or, or hair or, or, or blood in some cases, like the John Paul II that visited the network a few years ago. That's right. My good friend Tony Thomas yeah. uh, brought uh, relics of John Paul II. These are, you know, these are there for the purpose of, of, of drawing us to God and to Christ through the saintly body, the sainted body of the person. And that body, that very body, will share in the resurrection one day, and it's manifesting that through the miracles performed through the relics. So it's an entirely different purpose uh, than desecration, but it's veneration, honoring, and the pro propagation of the gospel, the doing of miracles, and the honoring of God through his saints. Jessica, thanks so much for your call. Colin Donovan, thank you so much, and have a You're great, welcome. great weekend. You too. Hope it's uh, restful for you. Uh, coming up next week, it's uh, more of the same. Wonderful programming straight ahead. Monday, Father John Tregilio. Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes. Wednesday, Father Mitch Pacwa. Thursday, Father Brian Milady. And Colin will be right back with you here next Friday uh, as well on EWTN's Open Line. On behalf of our great team here, I'm Tom Price. Hope that you have a wonderful weekend as well. We will see you on Monday. Have a great weekend. God bless.